Right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you all doing? Good. Is it warm enough for you? Yes. Yeah? I feel like I'm at home now. The heat <laughs> with us. Yeah. This feels like an average winter's day for us in Africa. So. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, some time ago, Colin and I did a safari, uh, and we do them in Africa as well. But we did one in the States. We took a car from California and we rode across um, the Sierra Mountains and across. A place called Death Valley. I don't know anybody who's been to Death Valley. Eh? It goes up to 58 degrees. Oh. You, you can hardly breathe. It like burns your lungs, you know. And we had this little rental car, you know. And we went quite slowly because we just wanted to enjoy the colors. And the slower we went, the more the, the temperature of the car just rose, you know. So you need to get air through it. It was quite an experience. Anyway, we, we got through. <laughs> they said, you can't go through Death Valley with a car like that. I said, well, that's all we've got, so we can't give it a go. And uh, so it was quite an experience, I must say. Never seen heat quite like that. It's the second lowest place on Earth, about 90 meters below sea level. I, I think the only other place is, is uh, Dead Sea in Galilee. You know, that's lower. Anyway, we, yeah, we made it. <laughs> yeah. Any of you ever been on a safari? Yeah. Yeah? Great. Where did you go? Uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Oh, great. You can do the Serengeti. Yeah, but uh, on the Masamara Masa side. Masamara, yeah, yeah. the Kenyan side. Lovely, man. It's a privilege to be there. Eh? Fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Other safaris? Yeah? Tanzania goes to Arusha. Okay, in Arusha, around that area. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, that's a South African in the Inclusive area. Sorry, where in the? Uh, where you're in Inclusive area. Okay, Inclusive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. KZN, yeah. Aeroport. At an elephant park. Yeah. It's our backyard. Yeah. <laughs> We live near the uh, elephant park. Yeah, no, it's great to be out in nature, hey? to yeah. enjoy nature. And so we love the safaris because it's so uh, earthy. You connect and there's very little space between you and nature. You, you blend into it. It's very restorative. We did it one of our, uh, when we had our, our 30th wedding anniversary. And we, when we got married, we, had, we took seven weeks honeymoon. And we took a tent, because we can only avoid, I think, afford three nights in a hotel. The rest, we just took our tent and camped <laughs> for seven weeks. So when we had our 30th anniversary, we married 44 years this year, but at 30, we, we did another seven-week safari, and um, including six days hiking down the Fish River Canyon. It's an African version of the Grand Canyon. What a wonderful experience. And you're just, you're alone, you know, and the, the silence is almost deafening. It's amazing. Anyway, life experiences, eh? And we, uh, let's pray. Lord, I pray that our time together would be useful, would be fruitful, would be helpful, uh, would be restorative. And no matter where we've come from in our life's journey, Lord, I pray that today would mark the, uh, the, the, the moment and the, the event of uh, the beginning of healthier ways of living and of doing life. And we know, Lord, that your plan for us is that we would live life to the full. You came uh, to give us life abundant, life to the full. So help us to, to do that in, in a way that really is healthy. And that others who benefit from us and not be drained by us. So we pray these things as we invite your presence, Lord, by your Spirit to come. Speak to us and help us to digest what we're uh, processing and to find ourselves restored and energized and, and freshly in, in, envisioned for the rest of our journeys. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
So maybe just a couple of comments about uh, us as well. Just as you know, we, we have been married 44 years. Like I said, we have uh, four children. They're all married and uh, 10 grandchildren. Can you believe it? I know I don't look that old, but uh, that's what it is. <laughs> and um, so uh, one of our sons is doing business in Cape Town uh, in a kingdom-minded way. In fact, uh, not so long ago, he took a, a sabbatical as a businessman and came to Malma. It was down the road here. And uh, just because he did his master's at Malma, he's in, in uh, design. Um, and uh, so even uh, though his calling is in the business field, He's created employment for about 50 families um, and uh, tries to run that, that side of his life just as if he was in leading a church, uh, taking sabbaticals, etc. That's a very important part of what we're talking about, just soul care. Um, my, my other son is in Kabecha. Can you say that yet? You guys have been practicing? Kabecha. Oh, that's great. You're coming on, eh? Getting your koisan kicks there. Um, and so he's a, he's a chicken farmer just outside our city. Farms chickens. Um, our daughter's uh, she's actually a high school teacher. She's she's uh, training as a counselor now. Um, and our other son, uh, Caleb, leads the Bristol Vineyard. In fact, uh, about two weeks ago, he told us he, he just changed the name from Bristol to something else. I think it's called Field Vineyard to make space for other vineyards to be planted in the same town. So he doesn't want to think of himself territorially. So they really have. Now they're, they've already got a, a new baby vineyard planted. He's been there for a year. So they've already launched a baby plant about a month ago. So they plan to saturate Bristol with fresh vineyard expressions. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, we're seeing him uh, tomorrow night. We, we're moving on down to, to Germany to go. I'd be interested to know how many of you have seen the Oberammergau Passion Play? Anybody? Not. Oberammergau, about 100, 140 kilometers south of Munich in Germany. Back in the Black Plague days, this, this town prayed that God would spare them, and, uh, and, and they were spared. Uh, and they, they said, we also show our gratitude by every 10 years, we'll put on an extravaganza, meaningful expression of the passion play. And you have to have lived, it's all done by local people, you have to have lived there for like 20 years to be a participant in the play. So, we don't have a bucket list and with, with COVID, it's been postponed, but it's this weekend, so we managed to go. Caleb's joining us there and we're going to do the weekend together. Right, so we're going to talk about soul care and before we do that, uh, I want to just take a little moment of these 10 reasons why pastors get depressed. Um, I learned some of this from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you might know the great Baptist preacher. Uh, and some of our, our own thoughts that we've added into it. So these are just up front. Um, some of the most common reasons why pastors will often lean into depression, and by pastors I would include Christian leaders, leading people in Christian circles. The one is for physiological neglect. You just don't live a balanced life. It's very imbalanced. So it's, it's very driven and uh, overloaded in some areas and underloaded in other areas. So the lack of, of, of balance in terms of your, your rest, your your uh, recreation, your eating, uh, your relational time, is just not balanced in your life. Um, and the imbalance will cause your life to be strained. And eventually your uh, soul gives way to depression. Secondly, the nature of the work. The emotional overload, because you're dealing constantly with people in crisis, so people with brokenness and, and stress. Um, I often... <laughs> They laugh at me back in our city because it's, I get so many suicidal calls 
and uh, I asked the person, where are you right now? They say, they've got to see me. So I say, well, where are you right now? No, I'm sitting at home under the shade of the tree. I say, well, I'll tell you what, just stay there. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, because uh, even, you know, it's amazing if it's my off day. You know, it's like it's a day off. It's your sabbatical moment. Um, if we want to go the distance, you've got to keep a sense of balance in it. Otherwise, it'll completely derail you. And uh, you can't let everyone else's crisis dictate to you when it actually uh, is a crisis for them that actually could wait until a more... Pre- They've had the crisis maybe 10 years already. Um, so their crisis doesn't have to become your crisis until it absolutely is necessary. So we, we want to exercise discernment about that. But the emotional overlay of, from the nature of the work is can be extreme. Um, the, the, the spread, too, from... Uh, ecstatic experiences to deep emotional pain, all in, in the space of a few minutes. You, you're dealing with such a spread of, of emotional overload. Um, I suppose the other aspect of the, in the nature of the work is that the work is never finished. Eh? It's one of the reasons why I, I do chainsawing as a hobby, because you can start cutting something and you can finish the job. You know? Whereas pastoral care is just like never finished. There's always more that's going to come up that's going to need attention. And uh, We'll need to be constantly working at it. So it's lovely to finish something. Um, also, the work involves spiritual warfare. We're involved with the demonic and the pressures and intensity of that. Um, and uh, the pain of rejection. Because most people's soul pain works in the realm of rejection. Um, and uh, especially because of guilt and shame and various levels of deprivation, uh, they, uh, they feel uh, rejected by God, but they can't. Um, get hold of God, so they get hold of you, who represents God. And so there's a transference taking place. Um, and uh, I'll often work it out on you. So that's the nature of the work. Third reason why Christian leaders get depressed is because of their position with the church. That often will lead to loneliness. Um, some people feel like if you're going to stay in leadership, you need to have a sense of being aloof, just a little distracted and distanced from the, the people themselves. Um, we don't think it's necessarily a good, uh, a good role model, but that's the mindset of many, that you should be up on a pedestal beyond the troubles of the people. Uh, and sometimes people put you there, and meanwhile, you know, it's, uh, you're very human as well. So and that, that's another healthy thing in the vineyard where we, we don't use titles. We don't even use titles like pastor or evangelist or, or a prophet or anything. We don't, we don't use titles. I know there's quite a movement calling for the restoration of the apostles and prophets. I would just urge you to be cautious about that. Um, I think some are calling it the, the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, and there's a lot of dangers in there. Uh, because in the vineyard mindset, correctly understood, those roles in Ephesians 4 are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, and they themselves are, are part of their work, but they, uh, to elevate them with status and titles leans into this, where they will be put on a pedestal. And uh, <clears throat> uh, number four is a failure to relax. Well, you, you kind of never feel like you're off. So we'll be talking about the need for sabbatical breaks and learning how to live sabbatically. Eh? Um, we, we've, we've tried to do that as a staff uh, at Fountain Vineyard. We have a, a, a staff of about four or five pastors and uh, multiple other specialized ministries, about 20-something people at Work. That's why I can come and go so, so much. Um, 
But we, we, every Monday, we're all, we can just switch our phones off. We, we're just not available on a Monday. It's our Sabbath day. And uh, every day between uh, 2 and 4.30 or 5 o'clock, we're also, we just take, take a break every day. So we, we work in the mornings, we work in, in the afternoons, evenings. Um, and that rhythm has helped us to go the distance. It helps us to build resilience. So uh, failure to relax. And then uh, distorted ideas about the ministry. Some people think the ministry is so important, we can't, uh, we can't let it be uh, neglected at all. Uh, but who you are and how you belong is always going to be more important than the, the work you perform. So watch out for, for that distorted idea about the ministry. Um, <clears throat> and number six, uh, no boundaries in the work uh, where you feel like this work is all-encompassing and must be allowed to overrun your life. Uh, that'll lead you to breakdown for sure. Um, and number seven, if there's too narrow a focus, you're focusing on a particular thing and you get, you've got tunnel vision on that instead of keeping a broad spread of perspective on various aspects of church life. That's why if you're leaders in a church, I really encourage you to make use of such tools as um, Christian Swartz's uh, Natural Church Development. There's a whole study on that. There's a book on that, in fact. In fact, uh, back in 1996, John Wimmer spoke to our, us as South African leaders and said, whatever you guys do going forward from here, <clears throat> don't aim at growth. Aim at health, and what is healthy will grow. So it was very helpful to us. So we don't aim at church growth. We aim at church health and leadership health. Uh, and if leaders are healthy, they'll raise up other leaders. If churches are healthy, they'll plant other churches, and it's reproducible if it's healthy. So <clears throat> too narrow a focus. And in Christian Schweitzer's um, presentation in the survey that he encourages, he's selected eight key characteristics um, and that covers a very wide spread of healthy church life. So it, it saves you from being too narrowly focused. Um, some churches just want to focus on one particular thing and uh, to the neglect of others. Um, I was just had a conversation with somebody in the break before coming here. Uh, we were just discussing a particular church that <clears throat> has become, we think, actually deceived because of the huge emphasis, and it might sound, might sound strange, on, on the giftedness of the leader and what the Spirit of God is doing in terms of the miraculous in the church. But there are many other areas where the church is failing. It's failing relationally, but they're having miracles. So just because there are miracles doesn't mean that this thing is healthy. How many televangelists say, in the, in, the, in the half flow of their gifting have nevertheless lived morally broken, huh? bankrupt? So we've we got, we got to be sure that we have a broad sweep of perspective on this. So watch out for being too narrow in your focus. And number eight, the confusion of role identity with self-esteem. You are more than what you do. Um, and if you are defined by the role. And I've heard, I've heard some pastors' wives call their husbands pastor. And I think this is absolutely crazy, you know. I Colleen would slap me if I tried to insist on that, you know. Uh, <laughs> Or the other way around, for that matter. Um, we are more than the roles we fulfill. We are first uh, human beings and human belongings and human becomings before we are human doings. Eh? Yeah. So important. Um, <clears throat> and then also money tensions is another reason pastors, Christian leaders can get depressed um, because of money factors. Eh? It's 3 John 2 first speaks about uh, may you prosper and being good health even as your soul prospers so 
money uh, should be an outflow of soul prosperity uh, and rather than a focus of our lives. You know, money, money talks. Eh? We, we mostly say money says goodbye. That's the most common thing that it says. just disappears. But money can drive people and can, can become a, uh, a focus that, that is very destructive in our lives. And in the ministry, for sure, the same thing. Um, but we can talk a little bit more about, about money and soul care uh, a little later. Um, and then uh, number 10, a very significant one. Uh, the reason why leaders get depressed is they fail in crucial conversations. Conversations that are necessary to change the flow of some person, some group of people that are moving in an in a, in a imbalanced way. Uh, we need to have the courage and the integrity to engage those, with those conversations. Um, and sometimes we live with conflict avoidance, don't we? And as a result, the problem doesn't go away. We're just putting it under the carpet, and it makes for a bumpy carpet. And when you have bumpy carpets in your house, you start walking around the bumps funny. And people often live with churches where they walk funny. Where you're, this person, you can't talk about divorce, or this person, you can't talk about bankruptcy, or this person, you can't talk about parenting, because there are histories, and there are things that are unresolved. And, and so eventually, the whole church is very bumpy. You know? It's got all these unresolved things and conversations that didn't take place when they should have taken place. Eh? And, and everybody's living their, their continued broken existence. When actually, we should be becoming whole, increasingly so. Huh? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah? And then just three helpful steps to sustaining victory in, in Christian leadership. Number one, celebrate your humanity. Celebrate that you're a child of God, you're a son or a daughter of God, long before you're a servant of God. Um, your humanity includes uh, uh, time to uh, give attention to your diet, to your exercise, if you're married, to your lovemaking. Uh, this should not be, and people ask me, well, how would you know if your lovemaking is healthy? Well, how often should that happen? <laughs> I don't know what, you, what you'd say in the Nordics. So how would you guys answer that? Uh, and I, you know, some people actually need guidance. I've come across some people who have a, a, a horrific stories in terms of their, their non-lovemaking in their marriages. It's amazing how it can just be put aside because somehow our love for God must become more important. And they, and they don't engage in intimacy. Uh, a month Three months. The worst case was a couple that, that said they'd only made love. They'd been married 22 years and made love three times. And they've got three kids. So you're talking about hitting the jackpot, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was a refusal to process the barriers, the hindrances to it, you know? Um, so <laughs> but our humanity is very much part of, uh, of that as well, and I, I would encourage a regularity. And I'm not talking about mechanical engagement, but uh, 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 spontaneity in your life that allows for frequency in intimacy. It's important. And it doesn't, there's no age limited, by the way, in case you're wondering if it's <laughs> um, And number two that will help you to sustain a good humanity and, and victory is receive permission to feel. Um, being in touch with how you feel is important. It's your humanity. So make sure that that is given space. And then uh, lastly, exercise the gift of limitation. Don't try and be everything, uh, but limit yourself to the things that you're meant to be giving attention to. Hey? Uh, I told the story the other day, I think, but I'll just tell you again quickly. This clown I saw who put these poles up around the arena where he was performing, and he spun plates on the poles, 
and uh, the more plates he spun, to keep them spinning, he, he had to keep, uh, uh, keep them balanced, he had to keep them spinning. So he ran around spinning plates, so he had about 30 plates spinning all around the, the stage. And uh, when I walked out of there, the Lord said, remember, I've called you to be a pastor, not a clown. Let every man spin his own plate. So in the church, we must remember our job as Christian leaders is to help everyone else also come to the place of, of exercising their gift. And uh, so be, in order for them to exercise their gift, don't do it for them. Empower them to do it. But don't do it for them. Does that make sense? Eh? Yeah. All right. So let's look at soul care for a moment. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, verse uh, 23, Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible does talk about um, body, soul, and spirit. Um, from a healthy biblical psychological point of view, we see ourselves as a composite whole where we have all three. As believers, we have an existence that encompasses all three. Um, and <clears throat> so let's just express that for a moment. The body is, um, is our, our world consciousness. I know that you're here. I can see you. You can see me. We can engage. We can touch. Um, so we have a consciousness of, our, of the world by virtue of our physical existence. Um, and uh, man also has a soul, which is the seat of our self-consciousness. Um, that's your personality domain. That's what makes you you. It makes, that's where you think, how you feel, um, where you make decisions. It's in the realm of your soul. Um, and you would decide a little differently from others. You have preferences and tastes that are different. Um, and so your soul has to do with, with that self-consciousness. And then the spirit is our God-shaped God consciousness. It's that vacuum that only God fills. And it's our spirit man that um, makes us conscious of God. Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. He's given us a hunger for eternity. And uh, there's a part of us that will never settle unless we're connecting with God. And that's the spirit part of us um, that drives us into... uh, living from the inside out. So that's a, a quick overview. One of the, the Hebrew words for, for soul is nefesh, which is, uh, describes uh, the soul, something like the neck in the body. Um, and it's, uh, without, the, without the neck, uh, uh, the spirit and the, and the body would not do well. And uh, we often need to think of that. So soul care is quite important. It helps us to live physically well and spiritually connected. How would you know if your soul is in trouble? Let me just take you through a couple of warning lights for soul trouble. If any of these things relate to you, then uh, you probably need to give some serious attention to some good soul talk engagement. And um, yeah, there are. Number one is a haunting sense of emptiness like this. There's, there's something missing. Um, like Victor Frankl talks about uh, man's search for meaning, as I, I've mentioned previously. Um, we, we have a sense of, I don't know why I'm living, a sense of purposelessness, of emptiness, and you're just existing. Um, and that's just, and when I talk about warning lights, it's like when you drive a motor vehicle and uh, certain lights come on on the dashboard, what you want to do is give attention to those lights. You don't want to just put a bit of tape over the light and make like it didn't come on. Because it's probably going to, it's pointing to some other trouble in the wheels or the engine or the brakes or something. Those lights are telling you something. And so if any of these lights are coming on for your soul, uh, give attention to it because there's soul trouble. Don't pretend it didn't happen. The second uh, warning light would be what I'd call duplicity. 
where you're living a, a double life or a second-hand life. It's not your life. You, you're living a, a copy of someone else. You're pretending to be someone who you're not. And there's a duplicity about you. And this is not really you. Uh, you've often heard people saying, I'm living in my sweet spot. What they're saying is, I found out who I am. And this is what I was made for. Huh? Um, so what for duplicity? That sense of, I'm not really being authentic. This is not me. I've got a, <laughs> uh, some years ago, I got hold of a, a leather pigskin blue leather uh, jacket with tassels. So, <laughs> I love it. It's my most comfortable jacket. Uh, but I don't, haven't seen another one in the whole world like that. And people always know if I wear that jacket, I'm feeling like I'm in my sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my wife still thinks it's a strange jacket, but it's okay because it's me. It's who I am, you know. Uh, so you need to dress for yourself. Uh, <laughs> be yourself, eh? I was, show, I was showing them a picture the other day of, uh, of when I was 17. Uh, I'd, I'd come in with the Jesus people, just got baptized in the Spirit. And a friend and I took our bicycles. We, drove, we rode from Cape Town right down about 1,000 kilometers down there across our country. Um, as young 17-year-old boys, handing out Bibles along the way and preaching to all kinds of people on the farms and whatever. And uh, I had a pair of jeans that, that were colored like tiger skin jeans. <laughs> And my kids think it's absolutely crazy. But I was raised with those jeans. I love them, you know. It's like who I am. I just think it's so healthy for you to take ownership of your life, your preferences, eh? Does that make sense, eh? Yeah. I mean, another small example. When we got married, how many, how many of you are married or have been married? You know, the Bible says those who marry will have trouble in this life. You know about that, yeah. eh? <laughs> you know about that out. But there can be pressure. When we got married, one of our early pressures was that um, Colleen's very neat. She's very organized, um, and she's structured, and, and it's great because she runs a home like it. But I, I live with a, a greater sense of re- being relaxed, you see. So if I want to take off my clothes from the day, I just drape them over a chair next to the bed, because I might wear that shirt tomorrow or something like that. Why was I going to fold it up and put it back in the cupboard? I just want to let it lie there. And she realized she wasn't going to be able to change that, you know. So, <laughs> so she found a way to, to make it legitimate. She got a, what, I don't know, she, we call it a dumb butler, like a little apparatus. You know that? Yeah, it, it's got an arm. You can hang your trousers over that and your shirt on the bed. And, and it becomes a formal place. So, so now she's happy. As long as I, my stuff stays on the dumb butler, <laughs> then it's, the mess is contained, you know. <laughs> so you've got to work it out. How to, how to, how, for her to be herself and how I could be myself. So, duplicity, watch out for that. Um, number three, the disorganization of life, uh, where we don't fulfill our intentions, where there's a gap between intention and practice. Your life is, is not consistent, not coherent. There's a disorganization. You intend some things, you intend this way, but you live that way. Um, and there will be a disconnect that will take place in your soul because of that. Uh, number four is self-absorption, where your life is all about me. You, you get sucked into navel-gazing, and it's all about a deep introspection that can, can, you can lose your way in self-absorption. Hey? So one of the, one of the ways we, we heal soul pain is actually by engaging in uh, uh, what we call a downward journey, an engagement in the, in the struggles of others. Because it does lift us out of our issues and gives us an awareness that we're part of a humanity of people that needs to take some attention from us. 
<clears throat> so watch out for self-absorption. And then number five is addictions, any form, any kind of addiction. Uh, and that, that might be substance abuse. Um, it might be eating, coffee, chocolate, tea, anything that, that could have an addictive element to it. But it could be much more than that. It could be uh, Netflix and movies and uh, social media hey? um, that can absorb you. How often haven't you found that somebody pulls out their phone to check a message? A few other people around them all pull out their phones because it's like there's a contagion. You want to stay in touch. Eh? And social media can just absorb you. And uh, you can be very addicted to that as well. Um, and uh, it could be also things like work, eh? workaholism, eh? or addicted to perfectionism, getting everything absolutely perfect. We've got a policy back in our staff of, of what's called good enough. We don't worry about perfection anymore. We just want to know that this will be, this will do to get the message over, or this will do to accomplish the event. So you work with a, a good enough policy rather than a perfectionistic policy. Perfectionism uh, really operates out of fear that it it won't uh, attract the pleasure of God unless we get him absolutely perfect like him, and that speaks of an idolatry that uh, will compromise our lives, eh? <clears throat> All right, so then how do we, let's start talking about soul therapy. It's enough about the broken parts, but how do we, how do we heal uh, soul trouble? Well, number one is you've got to acknowledge that you have a soul and that it has trouble. <laughs> so start with listening to your longings. That's one way of finding out what your soul is going on about. What are your longings? What are your yearnings? Year, years ago, in fact, I'll tell you when it was. It was 1969. How many years is that? Fifty-three years. I had a guy who mentored me in, in journaling. And journaling has been such a good exercise for me. I've done it for 53 years. Um, keeping a record of what's going on in my soul journey with God. So when I want to look back, I was, what did I learn at that time, 40 years ago, 30 years ago? I can flip back and find that journal and, and remember the lessons God. So your life is lived on a line instead of cyclically, just going round and round the same old mountain, you know? And uh, in the process of which... Every so often I take stock and say, well, what, am I living in touch with my soul? What, are the, what longings are not being fulfilled? Uh, where is it broken? And journaling has been a great help in that respect. Eh? So acknowledge your soul. Listen to, to your longings. An, an atheist's prayer goes like this. God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have one. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> um, because all of us have uh, this yearning in our souls. And uh, even if you are an atheist, you, you know, you... You have these explorations. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the number one issue uh, in terms of our soul longings is usually around the area, not about addiction so much as, a, as connection. Larry Krabs says that the problem um, uh, is not the, the addiction, it's the disconnection. Um, and the answer to addiction, to the breaking of addictions, is connection. If we can connect meaningfully, it is so deeply satisfying that we lose our propensity for what we were addicted to. We, we lean into that which is more satisfying than what was serv servicing us uh, previously. Um, the second part of the soul therapy is, is regular confession, um, where you put all that you are, all your contradictions, put them on the table, and you engage as honestly as you know how, and you refuse to die with secrets. And uh, you don't keep things suppressed. And every single person should be constantly engaging with in significant relations with other people with whom they can do soul talk. It's a very important part of our, our life. Um, 
In fact, the Psalms are about that. Let me just digress for a moment with regard to the Psalms. Uh, most of them written by David. And David uh, has, is an interesting man. Very likely uh, a man born uh, as a result of an adulterous affair between Jesse and, uh, and, and, and David's mother. Because David, uh, David's father is acknowledged to be Jesse. But David had two sisters whose names were Abigail and Zariah. And uh, their father was Nahash. If they're David's sisters, then obviously the common issue is the mother because they came from a different father. So David very likely was the product of an illegitimate relationship. Um, and uh, he says so himself. Remember when he, when he perpetuated the generational breakdown of adultery of Bathsheba? Uh, isn't it amazing how often things can repeat? Um, and in the Psalm 51 repentance, when he's journaling his, his soul anguish about what he's just engaged with Bathsheba, he says there, uh, in sin, the, verse 5, I think it is, in sin my mother conceived me. He acknowledges that, the sense of, of my, even my conception was, was, was sinful and was not honorable. Um, Psalm 27, he says, uh, when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord takes me up. And uh, it's like David used the Psalms as his soul journal. He was journaling the journey of his soul, processing who he is, who God is, how he's managing life, and it's a record of his unpacking of his own soul time and time again. Like he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So he's improving his self-talk as he brings his soul life before the Lord. Um, and uh, it's no wonder, actually, uh, when uh, I think Mike was preaching about that, when uh, Samuel was wanting to get a new king to replace Saul. Remember? And he lined up the sons of Jesse. And none of the seven hawks was, was, was to be chosen. And then they said, oh, well, there is one more. And it's like David was living that hidden life, uh, tucked away because he was the shame of the family. And he was brought in. Uh, the one who was shamed and despised and rejected was brought forward and became the king of Israel, and became the, the forefather of the Messiah. Uh, and that's a fascinating thing to me, how out of the brokenness of our honest dealings uh, with our soul journey, God will bring forth expressions of his life in Messianic birthing. But there are three other aspects. These are not in your notes. You might want to jot them down. Three other aspects of soul therapy. Uh, so we've had two. Acknowledge that you've got a soul and its, and its longings. Get into regular confession, which is why we really do um, emphasize the, the need for small group belonging in, in the life of the vineyard. Um, number three, regular exposure to suffering would be another good, healthy step in soul restoration because it, the suffering of others uh, awakens empathy in us. It awakens a humanity in us. It calls forth our souls when we're in touch with how others are, are, uh, have, have been suffering um, I've always been impressed by uh, stories of exposure, what we call this the downward journey, to the, the sufferings of others. That uh, I've had some amazing exposures to that, that keep us empathic, keep us uh, humbled um, and grateful. So important. Number four would be beauty. Take time for beauty. Beauty in people, beauty in nature, beauty in creation. Uh, because beauty is good for the soul, eh? It often speaks to us. Romans 1 tells us how, how nature itself speaks to us. And, and, the, and the psalmist speaks about the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, 
there's just something amazing. Even Abraham, when he looked up and saw the stars in the sky, you know, he's, he, he thought of the, the magnitude of God's favor and blessing and, and what he could do to this childless man, you know. Uh, so nature and beauty is an important part of our restoration. Take time to admire creativity, all things that speak of beauty. Number five, find God in everything. Engage with Him. Find Him in everything, in every detail of your life, in everything that's going on around you. Invite Him in. Uh, do life in conversation with God. <clears throat> and John Ortberg um, once said of Dallas Willard, how he'd watched him and thought of what a redeemed soul could be. And he described him in, in these next eight characteristics here. Let's just go through them. If you were a redeemed soul and you, you had been, uh, you, you, your therapy had, had taken place and you were coming to wholeness, what would that look like? You'd be able to say yes or no without anxiety or duplicity. You become more definitive and clear about your decision making. Anyone ever struggle with decision making? Hey? Yeah. Some of you are still trying to decide when you should put your hand up. <laughs> and I, I know in the times of my deepest brokenness, uh, indecision was a, was a terrible experience for me. I hated it. Um, and those were, those were times of anxiety, times also because of scarcity, when I didn't know if uh, we could survive uh, because it, it all depended on, on making the right decision. And God set me free from that. And uh, I had an experience with God uh, in Tennessee, uh, which I can quickly tell you about, you know, with a father who'd, who'd died by suicide. Uh, and some years later, uh, God was really working my case because quite rightly, people have been warning me that I carried a similar temperament. And uh, I was um, visiting with friends in Tennessee and uh, uh, having a meal with them in this restaurant. And I just felt like God saying, come walk alone with me. So I excused myself and walked down to the river, and the Tennessee River is a huge river, bigger than any African river that I, I've seen. And um, I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to put your hand in this river and stop this water. I looked around to make sure nobody's watching. <laughs> of course, and the water didn't stop, obviously. It uh, flowed by, and then he said to me, just like there's nothing you can do to stop this river, so there's nothing you can do to stop me loving you. It's my choice. I've chosen to love you. It's got nothing to do with how you perform. And then he said, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. My love for you is my choice. And in that moment, I realized that this is a divine romance, and that it originates in God. It's not about us needing to get it right. And um, I realized that my dad and I had the wrong discussions. We used to always think that the, the happiest man on earth was the one who could know the will of God and do it. And I just don't think that that's true anymore. You see, what we've got to know more than His will, because that speaks of perfectionism and getting it right and making the right decision, because otherwise the provision of God won't come through for you. It actually is much better to know the love of God. And God began to invite me to make mistakes. He said, have a mistake on me. I can carry it. I'm like, okay, I've got enough resources. You won't bankrupt me. <laughs> and I found that so freeing. Uh, it led on to a very, very profound season in my life over about 10 or 12 years where I, I processed very, very deeply uh, a deep transformation in, in my entire soul, personality, makeup. Um, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that I'm not now what I used to be then. And the people who live with me can testify to that. One aspect of that that relates to this indecision and the scarcity factor 
because I was raised in a, a context of relative scarcity, um, was that uh, God began to give me ideas uh, of wealth creation. And that's another side of this. As I quoted earlier about 3 John verse 2, may you prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. As my soul began to prosper, um, so there was an outward prosperity that, that accompanied it. I began to think more clearly, make decisions better, um, and, and more, in a more carefree manner. I felt the Lord, uh, after about 10 years of that journey, said the time has come for, for us to, uh, to put to the test how rooted you are in my love now. So I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I want you to go buy a house and put a tenant in it and, and arrange it as a 100% mortgage bond so that uh, it's entirely financed by the bank. And that would be a miracle in itself that the bank would give you a 100% uh, you know, mortgage bond and that the rental would cover the bond. And so I stepped out saying, Lord, it's your leading. I mean, it to, and I did that. And it was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, the Lord said, do it again, buy another one. And, and for 12 years, every year, I bought a house. <laughs> I was making sure that my life was rooted in the love of God. Yeah. And I was nailing down any... Any accusation of the evil one that uh, it's all all my cleverness. I repented of idolatry of cleverness and said, Lord, I'm just going to follow your leading and we see how that works out here. And uh, so it's been quite a a, a journey. And you can imagine with all those mortgage bonds and uh, and over a 25-year period, I've got about four, I think it's four more years, and then all the mortgage bonds will be paid off. All I've had to do was manage the risk. And the gospel enabled me to manage risk because I'm no longer rooted in my cleverness. I'm rooted in the love of God. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I'm not boasting. I'm boasting in God. It's, it's amazing love. Yeah. I live much more free now. And I found out I can never outgive God. We've been involved in so many acts of generosity and seed sowing. It's amazing how, how God has just turned it around for good time and time and time again. So He's faithful, huh? So if you come from a background of scarcity and indecision, lean into uh, the love of God. And number two, he says, yeah, just, sorry, I'm digressing too much. If I'm going too fast, guys, you can just stop me and wave or whatever. Huh? Um, speak with confidence and honesty. Number three, be willing to disappoint anybody, yet ready to bless everybody. So you don't have to have everybody think well of you, huh? Uh, to have a mind filled with more noble thoughts than could ever be spoken. So there needs to be more thoughts of the goodness of God in your mind than what you've expressed. Uh, so that there's a reservoir, a, 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 a fountain of um, positive understandings of God, and you're only speaking over the surface of it. Uh, to be able to share without thinking, so that you don't have to be carefully calculating in what you're saying. You want to get every word, every expression perfect. Um, to see without judging, and to be so genuinely humble that each person you see would be an object of wonder. So every person uh, is is amazing, is intriguing, and you feel privileged to be able to, to talk with them, and then simply to love God, to have an awareness of His goodness. That's so important. Um, so if you want to move uh, your soul towards that level of health, um, what kind of care would bring that about? What kind of change um, would be needed? Here's just three things just for you to 
be aware of. One is to own the need for it. Don't live with denial. Um, own your discontent. Own your angers. Own your fears. Acknowledge that they're there. Uh, own the need for change. I remember praying, Lord, I don't like the person I've become. I don't know if any of you have ever prayed that. Why am I like this? Hey? Uh, why does this always happen? Uh, and, 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 and being able to, to own that question before God is the beginning of soul change. You remember the story of Elijah after his uh, Mount Carmel experience when he, he took on the prophets of Baal and Asherah and, uh, and, uh, and beat them in a fire contest. Do you remember that story? Uh, in one, uh, uh, who was it? One, one Kings eighteen, I think eighteen. He had this huge contest on Mount Carmel, and uh, they called down fire, and nothing happened. Finally, at the end of the day, it was his turn, and they filled the the uh, place with water, and the, and had oxen on the on the on the fire on the wooden, and he called down fire, and God just sent the fire. It consumed everything. The oxen, the wood, the water, the stones, it was all just consumed. And Elijah was so exhilarated with this massive victory. Uh, and just a few days later, he hears that this woman Jezebel is, is after him. And he just collapses. I mean, he, he could take on all these prophets of Baal and Asherah, but one woman put him to flight and he runs off into the desert and prays to die. And he says, Lord, I'm no better than my forefathers. I just want to die. Take me. This is, I'm not going to make it. And he's in the, under this broom bush and he's wanting to die. Um, but the thing about it is that he was willing to say that to God in the desert place of his soul aridity and struggle. Um, and because of that, God took him on. And it, it, it God led him into some very significant changes and gave him a, a number of succession plans and details of forthcoming prophetic actions that needed to happen. And he began a whole new level. Of confidence. In fact, it is after that he, he brought Elisha into the picture, and uh, and and succession began to take place for Elijah. So that's the first thing. Own the need. And number two is grieve the loss, um, the sadness you you find yourself covered by. Um, you you need to, as we say in our healing ministries, you need to feel it to heal it. You've got to acknowledge that there's a need for this change, or else it'll never really take place. So grieve the loss. Um, and then number three, put it under God's love um, and submit it to Him, surrender to Him. Surrender is always going to be the way. You remember the prodigal son coming home from a far country and he says uh, uh, to his father, I, I've sinned, I just want to come back, I just want to be, yeah, I'll, I'll come with as much humility, whatever is required of me. And uh, the father obviously celebrated his homecoming as he just put himself uh, under the hands of the father. There's an interesting um, parable based on the the john 7 story of jesus if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink the parable goes like this the keeper of the stream if you can just um, catch this for a moment there was once a, a, a town high in the alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream the stream was fed by springs that were old as old as the earth and deep as the sea the water was clear like crystal children laughed and played beside it swans and geese swam in it you could see the rocks and the, and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that now no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing the branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water, but his work was unseen. 
One year the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair and taxes to collect and services to offer. And giving money to an unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains the springs went untended. Twigs and branches and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek. Farm waste turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. For a time, no one in the village noticed. But after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed that uh, the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened. The money was found. The old man was rehired. After yet another time, the springs were cleaned. The stream was pure. Children played again on its banks. Illness was replaced by health. The swans came home, and the village came back to life. The life of a village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. So our souls are very much like a stream of water. So Jesus said, out of innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So let's be sure that what flows out of us is a blessing to those who are living with us. If those living with us find life painful, hard, let's ask God to renew our own souls, that our souls could be in a a place of of health and restoration for the blessing of others. And uh, make sure that we, uh, the soil of our lives is healthy, not like as uh, the Mark 4 parable tells us, the hardened pathway soil or the soil that goes just to a limited level and then hits rocks, uh, or soil that is okay, but it's allowed all sorts of thorns to come and choke, and and the seed never comes to fullness. Um, But rather, good soil. Good soil that is often made up, because some of the best soil is made up of compost, the trash of the past, as it's turned into combustible uh, compost that we can use to grow a fresh new crop. So sometimes our historical wounds can actually establish us in new levels of maturity because we learn from the past. (coughs) The mistakes we've made are not uh, the reasons for us to embrace an identity of failure, but they're they're equipment, they're they're ingredients for our growth going forward. So that's a very important uh, part of of soul care. But going on from that, we will need to uh, think about the needs of our souls. How do we nourish the soul? How do we bring it to, to a, um, a healthy place? And there are some things that, that we can use to nourish our souls. Um, and just to acknowledge neediness is, is a very important part of soul care. So being needy is not wrong. It's a, it's a necessary part to acknowledge you have need. And so the nine needs of our souls, first is that our souls need a keeper. And uh, the best keeper of our souls is ourselves. We need to take responsibility for ourselves. Um, John Ortberg said, I I and only I am responsible for the condition of my soul. Um, So just make a decision that you'll be a soul keeper for yourself. That your soul deserves nourishment and you will give it. Secondly, the soul needs a center. Uh, it needs to be that which at the core establishes it. Like I said for myself, it was that fresh discovery of the love of God in my life and what that meant for me. Um, 
we need a center lest we um we fall around with indecision with vulnerability with impatience we're easily thrown we become reactive um and we find identity in other external factors instead of from an internal sense of knowing who we are so <clears throat> we need we need a center <coughs> a soul also needs a future we need a, a sense of of uh, ability to go forward and and uh, a hope to to move into um we need to we need to have confidence that there is a, a future and a hope for us. Paul says, I know the plans I have for you, for welfare, not for calamity, that you might have a future and a hope. So we need, a, we need to keep cultivating the hope that is rooted in love. Because everyone whom God loves, he is actually destined for a purpose. You know that Ephesians 2 passage, by, for by grace are you saved through faith. And then verse 10 goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for life of good works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's got a plan for each of our lives. And when we, the gospel has come to us in verse 8 and 9, we lean into His plan. We have a future. Then number four, the soul needs to be with God. It needs that constant intimacy with Him. Um, Psalm 63, the psalmist says, uh, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We need to be constantly nourished by the presence of God. I've got a, I've mentioned this before, but I've got a cave I go and pray in and spend time with the Lord uh, just a few kilometers from my home. And just a, you need to find a, the Russian Christians call it a, a pustinia, a place of regular engagement with God that it's tailor-made for your needs. Whether it's a, a tree in the corner of your garden or a shed somewhere or someplace where you and God have an encounter. Um, and, you, and, you, and you go to that place with a, a daily expectation to meet with Him and uh, uh, to be with God. You can be with Him all the time, for sure, for sure. But it's also good to have those moments when you correct, connect with Him without distraction. So that's the fourth one, to need, the need to be with God. The soul also needs rest. We've touched that a little bit, but we need to learn to live restfully. Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. I'm meek and lowly of heart. Learn in me. Take my yoke on you. He says, his yoke is easy and light. We learn to live restfully. Um, <clears throat> so we need to work out what rest actually means for us. Um, and, and rest would, would go along with being sabbatical. Uh, and you don't rest unless you know you're accepted. That would be one thing for sure. Um, you know that you're sustained, that God will provide for you, um, and that He'll make a way. Um, you also rest better when there's significance. So you need acceptance. You need sustenance. You need significance. Um, and, yeah, you also need silence. Just to be. Just to be in His presence and just to know that that's okay. Just to be with God. That's all that really counts. Because in His presence, He will cause achievement to flow in your life. So when you're achieving something, rest is easier as well. So by rest, I don't mean passivity. I mean an engaging lifestyle that uh, is well patterned and balanced. The soul also needs freedom. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. There's a freedom in God's Word. Uh, because truth sets us free. Huh? We need to engage with the truth of God that uh, helps us to live with new levels of freedom, daily reading of Scripture, and engaging with His truth, and letting it speak to us. Eh? Uh, and I would encourage you to do it on a daily basis, eh? just to take a portion of Scripture every day, journal it, 
uh, write down what God's teaching you, write how you're responding to that, and so you can build increasing sustenance into your soul. Um, some people say, you know, I want to grow up. Won't you just grow me, please, Pastor? But uh, it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to feed yourself. Eh? You've got to take responsibility and uh, for your soul. And then so the soul also needs blessing. We have oftentimes too little of that. So in the vineyard, we found it such a wonderful way to pray for others by blessing what God is doing in people's lives, blessing the awareness of His goodness, um, blessing His... Uh, He's dealing in their lives and, and speaking favor and uh, uh, affirmation over people's lives. I always think we, we, we run very short on vitamin A of acceptance, affirmation, affection, and appreciation. We need those things in our lives, in our relationships. If we don't have them, we'll find the thing running dry. So we need blessing, huh? Um, and we see expressions of that with Isaac blessing Jacob, Abraham blessing Isaac. We have blessing being expressed throughout the scriptures. And then number eight, the soul needs satisfaction. Um, Psalm 63 says, Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. In your name I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. Uh, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. But the soul needs finally gratitude. The best climate for good soul care is gratitude. To live with gratitude. Uh, so you don't... You don't even have to tithe in order to, to be saved. You know that. You're saved because of God's love. And because you are saved and He's loved on you so much, um, everything about your life, every change and every act of obedience is an expression of gratitude to God. So gratitude is a far more accurate expression of a response to the New Testament, to the Gospel, than uh, our striving to, uh, to obtain the favor of God. One last thing I'd like to just touch for a few moments is what's uh, sometimes called the dark night of the soul. Um, because it's a, an area of our, of our uh, lives that we often will struggle with. Um, and John, uh, John of the Cross, a Carmelite um, monk, coined the phrase in the 16th century in Spain of the dark night of the soul, which is a, a season of suffering. Um, and... Uh, um, where it doesn't feel like your support systems are in place, and it feels like you're, uh, you're, 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 you're experiencing the silence of God, and there's not much coming through. Uh, but somehow God is steadying us and, and helping us to, to be grounded in those times and not frantically running this way and that way, wanting to live on the candy of life, but just waiting for Him. And He teaches us patience in the dark night of the soul. Um, and there are times that are really initiated by God, not by our sin, by God Himself who wants to secure us um, and, and help us to be in a place of, of, uh, of deeper nourishment. Um, and it's in those times that we remember in the night what we saw in the day. So we keep walking by what we saw, even when you can't feel and perceive it, but you remember it. And you live by the memory of what God has done and what His, what he, what his Scriptures have spoken about. And you lean into that. Um, so John Ortberg says about this dark night, he says, What do you do in the dark night? He says, We do nothing. We wait. We remember. We remember that we are not God. We hold on. We ask for help. We do less. We resign from things. We rest more. We stop going to church. We ask somebody else to pray because we can't. We let go of our need to hurry through it. We vent to God. So it's a time of, of deep pressing into God. 
Does that make sense to you? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> if I bring this to a close, I'd like to just say two last things. The one is uh, good soul care will require that we have the courage to challenge the lies that are often discolored our lives. The lies that we've often lived by. Lives, lives that have expressed value judgment over us. Um, and uh, the b- biggest damage of the lies is they stop us dreaming. We stop dreaming because we're leaning into a lie that has cut short our potential. And uh, the most common reasons we stop dreaming then is because we become too busy. Our busyness replaces our meaningfulness. We become afraid. And uh, that keeps us uh, living small lives. We don't want to be expansive and embrace the dream. Or perhaps hopelessness. We're too wounded to explore beyond this. And so we live uh, as wounded warriors. Eh? So that's, that's the thing to watch out for. Watch out for the lies. And in your soul journey, uh, ask God to show you what are the lies that you live by. Have any of you ever had any, uh, a, a sozo experience that Bethel has used as a method? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an exploration for the listening uh, to, to the lies that have captured your life and kept it less than what it should be. Um, so watch out for that and, and own those lies and bring them before God. Break the power and the tyranny of the lies um, and let the truth of God replace those lies. The other, and this is the closing thought, um, the other thing I think we must hold on to in, uh, in this pursuit of healthy soul care is the goodness of God. Um, you know, I said in the beginning, and I want to close with this, uh, it's all about a divine romance. Uh, following God and having healthy soul life is, a, is, a, is a, uh, an engagement with the love of God and the truth that flows from that into our lives. Um, and if we, if we do that, if we lean into the love relation with God, we will even see things like the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the 613 other laws that flowed out of that in, in the, the mission of Israel. Um, we're actually intended by God to be descriptive rather than prescriptive for the way we are to live. He's, if you follow me, because you remember Abraham loved God and, was, and, and, and lived in a relation with God before the Bible was given, before the Ten Commandments came out of Mount Sinai. So Abraham had a relation with God that is before the book. Yeah. Now, I'm not despising Scripture, but I want you to know that God is who He is before the book was written. If that makes sense to you. So he's, he's essentially a being who invites us into an encounter with him. And it's an encounter of goodness. And if we do know him, then we, we won't kill, we won't steal, we won't cheat, we won't commit adultery. If, we, if we're living in relationship to this one whom we've met, he will influence us to live in a particular way. And the commandments that are given as commandments will actually be descriptive of what will flow in our lives. And when they're not flowing, it's because we stopped loving God. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. It's a, an invitation into a, a romance with Him. So St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said in the 4th century, all that is required of us is to love God and do what we like. Because <laughs> if we love God, yeah. we'll do what He likes. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. And that's really a good message for soul care. Huh? Yeah. Love God and do what you like. hope that's been helpful, guys. Yes. Are there any questions or things that you would like me to just to clarify? Anybody?
Oh, good. So I encourage you to. Um, yeah, you got from the back. Okay, <laughs> acceptance, affirmation, uh, affection, and appreciation. Four A's of vitamin A for our relationships. <laughs> we need to have a lot more of that, eh? Yeah. A lot more of that. Mm. I remember having a conversation with Larry Crabb, who was one of my mentors, uh, on on um, uh, Soul Talk. He wrote a book. In fact, you, could, you might read some. Larry's written some really good books. One's called Soul Talk, and other one's called Connection. Um, he, Larry Crab. Larry I was on a retreat with him in Colorado and uh, uh, had the privilege of sitting down and having a soul talk on a one-on-one with Larry. And uh, he kept asking the why questions. And, and every time he asked the why questions, like another layer of the onion going deeper and deeper. You know, why is that important? Why do you respond to that? Why, why does that make you feel like that? And, and it's just going deeper and deeper and deeper until you know you, you're like naked before God, you know. <laughs> And it's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing to actually get in touch with your true humanity, who you actually are. Eh? <laughs> yeah. You mentioned a book about natural church development. Yeah. Is it called that? It's called that, Na- by Natural Church Development by Christian Swartz, a German guy. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, in fact, if you, you guys lead in church, I encourage you to, to take it on. We did, we, we did a five-year period of uh, the exercise he gives in the book to survey the health of your church. Uh, and we, we do it every, every couple of years. We pull it back and we do it again. See how, it's like checking the pulse, you know, how healthy are you? you know? Okay, so I, I'd encourage you to, to um, ask God to teach you how to do soul talk with others. Eh? Um, and invariably, soul talk will go around disarming the idolatries of our lives, the things we've leaned into. You know, successful life. What does a perfect church look like? And so many things that can distract us from, from an authentic place. So, soul talk gets us into that right direction. Eh? Shall we pray? Yeah. Father, I thank you that uh, you you love to engage us in the the things that would make us healthier, and you you long for your your, your sons and your daughters to live in right relationship with you and with one another. So Lord, I pray for all of us that we would get better at doing this. We'd get better at being in touch with ourselves and helping each other to walk in a way that invites health, invites transparency and vulnerability and ultimately a true confidence. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, in, the, in this room and in, this, in these nations. I pray, Lord, that you would do a, a wonderful deepening work in all of our lives. We, I pray that we would not be superficial people, that we'd be people who live at the deepest, most meaningful level in relation to your love. And that year on year when we see each other and when we connect, that we would be able to see evidences of your love working health into us in our finances, in our relationships, in our plans, in the way we do life. So Lord, I call, call on your Spirit to release revelations of your goodness and the steadfastness of your love. As David discovered that, help us to know the steadfastness of your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all, eh? Thank you. Good.
Thank you.